reading of God's Word. We are continuing our study of the book of Matthew. We will begin chapter 9 today. This is page 813 in your pew Bible. 813. Matthew chapter 9. 9 is the big number, and we'll be going all the way to verse 13 this morning. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. You may be seated. Lord, we cannot open a text like this and not seek your guidance this morning. So, Father, I pray that as, as we look to your word, that you would pierce our hearts into two pieces. God, for any of us who has come this morning with a pharisaical heart, who cannot hear your word because of their own self-righteousness, God, would you silence their own self-righteousness, show them their own sin, and let them hear the call of Christ. And Father, for anyone who has come this morning who feels like you could not possibly forgive them for their sin, that there is no way that this message of Christ is for them because their sin is too great, Father, would you silence them too? And would you remind them that you have come to save sinners? Speak to all of us this morning, Father, from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're now at what I believe to be the climax of chapters 8 and 9. As we've been walking our way very slowly through Matthew's gospel, here we are and we're at the high point. It's also a turning point of sorts. Jesus has more and more been revealing to us who he is, and now he's turning directly to show us why he's come. 
He's been teaching us that he's the promised king, the Messiah, the one called the Son of Man from Daniel 7, who was given authority to bring God's kingdom to earth. But now, Matthew's also been showing us he's the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, the one who takes away our sins. We have both of these sort of at tension with one another. Somehow, Jesus is both. He's the the suffering servant who takes away our iniquity and the powerful king appointed by God who receives authority to rule over all creation. Remember, over the past couple weeks, we've been shown his authority. He's been given authority over the wind and the waves. He's been given authority over the demons. Somehow that, that lamb who will be slain is the lion who no one can stand against. And it's these two stories this morning where we begin to see these two identities of Christ come together as one. In the first story, this episode with the paralytic, Jesus and the disciples, they leave the east side, so for you that would be this side, the east side of the Sea of Galilee. If you remember last week, they were over there with the Gadarenes. The Gadarenes had rejected Jesus. They'd sent him away, said, get out of our region after he had healed the demoniacs. And so now he sailed back over to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's back in Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters. Matthew says in verse 1, they're at his own city. That's what he means by that. This is, this is where Jesus has sort of set up his evangelistic camp, Capernaum. Most likely, they're back at Peter's house. Remember, Peter's home was where they had left before they went over to the Gadarenes. This is the same place where, they were, where the people were coming to him in chapter 8. And so people hear Jesus is back in town. They, he had kind of left in a hurry. If you remember, he had left in a hurry. People were lining up to be healed by him. And then he left. And now he's back and the crowds are gathering in again. If, if you read Mark's account of this story or Luke's account of this story, you'll find out that it's so crowded at the house that Jesus is at that there's no way to access Jesus. The paralytic's friends want to get this man to Jesus, and so they come in through the roof. You remember that story from the felt boards in Sunday school? Matthew doesn't tell it that way. He says nothing about how they get the man to Jesus. He's not concerned with the particular details of the story. I think he doesn't want to distract us. He doesn't want to distract us from the main point. Remember, Matthew wants to show us why Jesus has come and who he is. So in this story with the, the paralytic man, Matthew answers those questions with two more beholds. Do you remember the beholds from last week? How they show us to pay attention to the text? There's two of these, look at this part of the text statements that Matthew has for us. The first one is in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. And behold, look at this reader, pay attention. Matthew wants to show us. Some people brought to him a paralytic lying on the bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. There's no mistaking what Matthew wants to show us here. This is not about the men who bring the paralytic. And what nice friends they are, or how hard it was to get through the roof. 
This is 100% about Jesus. Why has he come? He's come to forgive sins. Let's just kind of walk slowly through verse 2. Okay, and we'll see this kind of pop out. So the men bring the paralyzed man to Jesus. Jesus looks at them. He sees their faith. And I think when he says he sees their faith, he's talking about all of those men. The men who brought the paralytic and the paralytic as well. He sees that they believe he can help them. That's what faith is. Believing that Jesus can help and then acting on that belief. These guys are not staying at home and saying, oh, Jesus is back in town. I bet he could heal you. That's not faith. It's acting on that belief. Faith for these men is knowing that Jesus can help and then going to Jesus. Actively pursuing the grace that Jesus provides. Matthew says Jesus sees their faith. The story is different than the other healing stories, though. Right? If, if, you're, if, you've been, if you've grown up in the church or you're familiar with the Bible and you're familiar with the gospel accounts, usually when someone comes to Jesus with faith, he heals them physically. Right? He'll, he'll, he'll say something like, get up, your faith has made you well. It's not what happens here. Matthew wants us to see that when Jesus sees the faith of these men, he also sees more than faith. In the paralytic man. Look what he says to him. He says, Take heart, my son. To take heart means means have courage. Have courage. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul uses this word. In in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, Paul is going through this, this great explanation of what it means to hope in Christ. He says that through difficulty, God is preparing him for this eternal weight of glory. And then he says, so we are always of good courage. It's the same word in the original language. We're of good courage. You might remember if you've read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, when Lucy and the Pevensey's kids are in the midst of this enormous trial in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, what does Aslan tell Lucy? He says, courage, dear heart. He's quoting Jesus. Have courage. Take heart. You don't have to be afraid anymore. So Jesus, if we kind of think of what's going on here, Jesus is looking into the heart of this paralyzed man, and he doesn't just see a man who believes that Jesus can make him walk again. He sees a man who's afraid. And so Jesus comforts him. And look at how he comforts him. He doesn't just say, chin up, chap. It's going to be all right. He helps him. He addresses this man's deepest concern. He forgives him. He knows that this man's greatest need is forgiveness. Not physical healing. Take heart, my son, Your sins are forgiven. How is his heart supposed to be given courage? How is he supposed to to have that fear relieved by having his sins forgiven? There's no greater fear than the fear that your sins cannot or will not be forgiven. 
Nothing will trouble a heart more than that guilt. Nothing. There's nothing that will lead you to more anxiety and despair than the thought that you have done something that cannot be forgiven. That thought will burrow deep into your soul and it will unsettle you. This man is more troubled by that thought, by his sin, than he is the thought that he will never walk again. Maybe it's the case that he believes his sin led to this paralysis. Maybe he has secret sin. Maybe he believes his sins are so embarrassingly great and so shameful that they cannot be forgiven. Whatever it is, we know that he's deeply troubled by it. And Jesus sees it and Jesus forgives him. And there's no greater joy than hearing these words, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. There's no greater fear, there's no greater anxiety than living with unforgiven sin, and there's no greater joy than hearing those words. And I just want to tell you this morning, if you're not filled with joy and relief at hearing that sentence... I want you to keep listening this morning. If those, if those words of Jesus don't affect you in any way, I want you to keep listening. Or, or if you're like the scribes and those words bother you, if, they, if you bristle at hearing, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. If that bothers you to no end, keep listening because this morning's passage is for you. Look at verse 3. This is the scribe's response, and we get it with another behold. All right, so the first behold, Christ forgives the sins of this man. The second behold is the response of the scribes. Look at this reader. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Uh, Blaspheming isn't a, a word that we regularly use, is it? This is... Another one of these Christianese things that we kind of have to define. To blaspheme means to take something that is holy and make it profane. Jews considered it blasphemy for a man to use God's revealed name, that holy name that God revealed to Moses in the burning but not burning bush. God's name is something that belongs to God. It's something holy and only he can say it. It's his prerogative. So for a man to use God's revealed name would be considered blasphemy, to take something holy and to make it profane. Nehemiah said that it was blasphemy when the Israelites made a golden calf and said that that calf brought them out of Egypt. The calf didn't bring them out of Egypt, did it? God did. So what had they done? They'd taken a holy act their own redemption from slavery, and they made it profane. They made a statue and said the statue saved them. You see why that would be blasphemy? And so here's this this carpenter's son from Nazareth who has said to this broken, pitiful man, your sins are forgiven. And, And these scribes, these guys know their Bibles. This is their job. 
They know their Bibles really, really well. And they know that Jesus has just done something that only God can do. Forgiveness, like redemption, like saying God's revealed name, that's God's prerogative. Only God gets to do that. And Jesus has taken it from God. Jesus has taken something that is only God's to perform. And he's saying he can do that. And so what these theologically orthodox scribes say in their hearts is this man is blaspheming. And if Jesus isn't who he says he is, they're right. He is blaspheming. But they don't say it out loud because I I think they don't say it out loud because they're not sure if Jesus is who he says he is yet. They're just thinking this. They're not saying anything. But Jesus sees into their hearts And he shows us that their hearts are evil. Look at verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, why do you think evil in your hearts? The heart is the place of the thoughts for them. So Jesus looked into the heart of the paralytic, and he saw the fear that comes with unforgiven sin. And as he looks into the heart of these scribes, he sees unbelief. And he calls it evil. That's what it is. He does not see the scribes thinking this. Forgive me too. I want forgiveness. I want to be made whole. That would be the right response. Instead, he sees them thinking, you do not have the authority to do this. Jesus, you're blaspheming. And what that is, is unbelief. And what Jesus calls it is evil. These men who look so good and holy and righteous on the outside, these men with really good theology and really good Bible training, their hearts are evil. And Jesus sees it. But look at what he says to them. He does not say to them, your sins are forgiven. That's what they need. But Jesus doesn't tell them that. He does doesn't tell them that because they don't think they need forgiveness. They think Jesus is the one sinning. And so Jesus challenges them in verse 5 and says, which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk? You see what Jesus is doing? Neither of these things is easy. Neither of these things is easy for scribes or for anyone else. Nobody can forgive sins and nobody can make a paralytic well again. Think of it this way. This is like saying to your cat, which is easier, using a fork or using chopsticks? Uh, To to a thumbless demon, that's a nonsense question. (laughs) And that's what Jesus is doing to the scribes. He's asking a nonsense rhetorical question. He's putting them in their place. Forgiving sins and healing paralytics are equally impossible for these scribes. But for Jesus, they're equally easy. And one proves the other. Healing the paralytic proves that he has the authority to forgive sins. Do you see how it works? It proves he's been given divine authority. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says exactly this thing. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's his self-described title, 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. The the scribes were right in this. The authority to forgive sins and heal diseases goes hand in hand. And that authority belongs to God. And God alone. It belongs to the Lord God. Justin read for us earlier from Psalm 103. Let me show you something else Psalm 103 says. Psalm 103, verses 2 through 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. You see how they're married together? The forgiveness of sins and the healing of diseases, that's something that belongs to God. To the Lord God, to Yahweh. This is God's prerogative, and He's given it to the Son of Man. You remember this Son of Man from Daniel 7? Let me show you Daniel 7 again, because every time Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man, we should be thinking of this verse. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him, and to Him was given dominion, or think authority, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man, that Jesus is describing himself as, has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom. He's been given authority. God the Father has given the incarnate Son what was His. Authority over the seas, authority over demons, authority to forgive sins. And how do the people respond? The same way they do in Daniel 7. When the crowd saw this, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They're afraid because the man who has authority to forgive sins has authority over their lives. This is a holy fear. This is the type of fear we should have. This is the right kind of fear to have in the presence of someone who has absolute authority over your life. They're afraid, but they glorify God because the one with this absolute authority can forgive sins and they know that this is good news. In the second episode, we see something very similar to the first. So we're moving on to verse 9 now. There's, there's a man here in this second story whose greatest need is forgiveness, and Jesus provides it. It's also like the first story in that those who see this happen accuse Jesus of sin. Right? So we're going to see a lot of parallels between the paralytic and Matthew. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, so he was there near in Capernaum, and he's walking along the shore. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now remember, this is Matthew's gospel, right? This is the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew wrote this. So this is Matthew telling us his own story. It's autobiographical. 
And interestingly, he includes very few details. The person who should know the most about what happened that day tells us the least. If you read this story in Luke 5, not this morning, but this afternoon, you'll see a lot more detail, just like the story before. Luke tells us a lot more detail than Matthew tells us. But what Matthew does include here is really revealing. Matthew's at work doing what he does. He's collecting taxes. Jesus approaches him and he says, follow me. And Matthew says, and he rose and followed him. And it seems pretty simple. This is how Jesus calls people to follow him. He just says, follow me. And they do. He said that to the disciples back in chapter 4, to the fishermen. He said that before they crossed the sea in chapter 8 a couple weeks ago. Whenever Jesus says, follow me, we know that the person listening is going to follow him. They're going to obey. They must. They're compelled. But the way that Matthew sets up this story is a little bit different. Look again back at verses 6 and 7 with the paralytic. Jesus says to the paralytic man who, who he's already forgiven, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And then look at verse 7. And he rose. And then the very next verse, Jesus approaches Matthew, a sinner. And he says, follow me. And what does Matthew do? He rose. And he followed him. You see what Matthew's doing? He's saying, when Jesus called me to follow him, he healed me. My greatest need, my greatest sickness was sin. I was stuck. I was in bondage to my sin and I couldn't get up off the mat. I couldn't get away from my greed. I couldn't leave it behind on my own. But Jesus called me. He called me. And I rose. Like the paralyzed man, I rose and obeyed Jesus. You see the connection? Luke tells us in his account that Matthew left everything behind to follow Jesus. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Matthew leaves that out. He doesn't want to distract us with all the stuff that he left behind to follow Jesus. Yes, so he can never be a tax collector again. He'll never have access to the type of wealth that he had ever again. Matthew isn't concerned with that, though. What Matthew wants us to see is that he is identifying himself with the paralytic, the man whose sin was his greatest sickness and who Christ forgave and healed. Matthew says, I was like him. And Jesus saved me. He healed me. Well, the way that Luke tells the story is that Matthew was so excited about his his newfound freedom. He calls all of his tax collector friends and all the other people whose sin is too great or too gross for polite company. He gathers them all together to his house to meet Jesus and to eat with him. But again, Matthew doesn't tell us that. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Look at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, he doesn't even say this is Matthew's house. He just says the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Who's the focal point? It's Jesus, isn't it? The focus is on Jesus. Who's Jesus? What's Jesus doing? And how should we respond to him? Matthew wants to show us that they were drawn to Jesus. 
and that Jesus ate with them. He ate with these despicable people. To to eat with people in in those days was to approve of them. To to recline at table, the way that Matthew points it, is to invite somebody into your inner circle, into your friend zone. You only do this with people you love. And you're not supposed to love people like this. Okay, this is, it's kind of the setting here. But Jesus is different. We've already seen that. Jesus touched the leper. Do you remember that? And he was not made unclean. He talked with that Gentile centurion. He, he took a lowly woman by the hand. He touched her. He talked with this demon-possessed man. And here he is eating with the vilest of people. The people that the rest of the town wants nothing to do with. You, you might know this already, but tax collectors in those days were scammers. Right? They worked on commissions that they set themselves. Romans didn't like them because the Romans had to turn a, a blind eye to, to their collection methods. And Jews hated them because they were cheats and they were unclean because they worked with Gentiles. The only friends tax collectors had were other tax collectors. And Jesus is eating with them. And then this other group, the people that Matthew calls sinners, you know what he means by that? He means people that are known sinners. He's talking about people who have been given a label by everybody else. Basically, anyone who's not known by their names, but by the sins that they've committed. So so today, this is your drunks. This is your drug addicts. This is your prostitutes and registered sex offenders and adulterers. People who can't deny that they're sinners. They can't deny it because it's a label. They know that they need forgiveness because the entire town knows about their sin. Their sin has swallowed their identity. It's who they are now. And Jesus is eating with them. So we get to verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You and I both know what kind of question this is, don't we? This is not a sincere inquiry. This is an accusation in the form of a question. Like, when was the last time you brushed your teeth? Right? If somebody asks you that, They don't really want to know when the last time was you brushed your teeth. What are they saying? Your breath stinks. The the Pharisees, the people who are externally the holiest people in town, they're telling Jesus' disciples, they're, they're not asking a question. They're telling the disciples, your teacher is not as holy as you think. He's not worth following. He's making himself unclean with these people. He's associating with them. And he's not supposed to. They're they're declaring the truly sinless one is guilty because of his associations. And do do you notice that just like the scribes in that first story, the Pharisees here don't confront Jesus directly? They're a step closer from thinking unbelieving thoughts to actually saying them. But they don't say these things to Jesus. They don't talk to Jesus directly. They go to the disciples instead. Who knows why? I don't want to speculate on why. 
It's just interesting now. But just like the last section, Jesus overhears their words. He hears words that aren't meant for him to hear, and then he confronts these, the doubters. All right? Now, I want to give you a trigger warning. What we're about to get to in verses 12 and 13, Jesus' response to these guys, he's going to say some really hard things, and then, and then we're going to be done. So, so if you've come to church this morning to hear a story and to, to kind of feel good about yourself, Jesus has more for you than that, okay? Christianity isn't fluffy. It, it's serious business. Eternity is at stake. So, so, so all I'm going to do is as gently as I can repeat Jesus' words because he loves you more than anyone else. He loves you more than anyone else. And if Jesus can say things that he's about to say to people that he loves, then we should let him. So we're just going to let Jesus' words speak for themselves. And if what that says troubles you, you can talk to him about it. All right, so look at verse 12. But when he heard it, that is, when, when Jesus heard this question about eating with sinners, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You see what he's doing? He's taking all of those healings from chapter 8 all the way up to this point, and he's saying, I healed those people to show you that I actually came to forgive I healed people physically to prove to you that I actually came to heal you spiritually. Jesus didn't heal people with vague diseases the way that the TV preachers do. He healed people with real problems. Paralysis and fevers and leprosy. Later on, he's going to heal the blind and the mute. and He's going to raise a little girl from the dead. But his greatest work is taking those who have been cast aside because of their sin and giving them what no one else on earth can give them. Forgiveness. He, he came for the sick, not the well. He came for the sinner, not the righteous. He says it in verse 13, doesn't he? This is a firm and direct correction of the Pharisees and anybody with a Pharisaical heart. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know what he's doing? He's quoting Hosea 6. Mike read Hosea chapter 6 for us. And in that prophecy, the prophet is telling the priests in Israel that they're not truly devoted to God. They're making the sacrifices, they're going through the rituals, and, and by all appearances, they're religious, but they don't truly know God. If they truly knew Him, their hearts would have been affected by Him. Their devotion to God would affect their lives. But rather than being devoted to God, these, these priests in Hosea 6 are caught up in traditions. Rather than, than being transformed by God, that they're caught up in the, the outward workings of Judaism. And what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees that message from God to those idol-worshipping priests in old Israel, that message is for you. You know why this is shocking? You know why this is so unsettling? 
Because these Pharisees, we look at them as the bad guys, but remember, these are the zealous guys who are trying to get Israel back on the right path. They were fasting and praying and sacrificing and helping the poor. They're doing everything right. They're they're trying to obey God so that God would heal their land and get the Romans ousted. They're trying to restore Israel by keeping the law and making the sacrifices. And what does Jesus tell these guys? He's saying, you're just as wicked as the priests who got Israel exiled. You think you know God? You think you're close to God because you do all this religious stuff? Because you fast twice a week? You tithe and you're super pure and holier than everyone else? And you're at the synagogue whenever it's open? But you don't recognize the promised one when he's standing right in front of you. You don't recognize that the very character of God, the very heart of God is present in Jesus because they don't really know God. And so Jesus says, God desires mercy. And if you knew him, you'd know that. Not sacrifice. He'd rather see in your heart a heart that is devoted to him, not a heart that is devoted to traditions. And then Jesus drives the nail through them. It's one of the most difficult things that he says in the entire New Testament. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See what he's telling his Pharisees? You think you're well. You think that you're right with God because your sin isn't as visible as the sins of these people that are sitting with me. You think you and God are tight because the sins that you commit are secret. And they're not as shameful. And they're not as public. Jesus, I didn't come for you. I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick. I came for people who know. People who know that they're sinners. And until you know you need me, You can't hear me, you can't see me, and you can't know me as your Savior. He's saying to these men, you're so sure of your righteousness that you can't see your brokenness. But these these tax collectors and sinners, they know. They know that they're broken. They know that they're sinful. They know that their hearts are dark, that their sins are shameful. They know they need a Savior. But I've purified them. I've forgiven them. I've made them well because I've called them to me to follow me. And so I'm eating with them because I came for them. See what Jesus has done? He's just drawn a line, hasn't he? He's drawn a line between the righteous, and by that he means the self-righteous, and the sinners. So let's just ask this morning, which group do you belong with? Are you in the group of the self-righteous to whom Jesus is not calling or to the sinners that he came for? To the sinners he's saying, I came for you. I came for you to call you to repent of your sins and follow me. And to the self-righteous he's saying, you're too deaf to hear me. Which group do you belong to? 
Remember the gospel message that Jesus was proclaiming everywhere he went? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The sinner, the one who knows that they're a sinner, they hear that, and in that they hear the good news of forgiveness. They hear Jesus saying, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And they repent and follow Jesus. They hear Jesus saying to them, get up from your greed and follow me. And they repent to follow Jesus. But the self-righteous hears the words of Jesus and says, I have no need of forgiveness. If you're a sinner, if you can name your sins, Jesus came for you. He came to forgive you, to wash you, to eat with you. Hear his call. Repent and follow him. But if that's not you, if you think you're righteous because you're more righteous than your neighbor, Jesus isn't for you. If you think that because you're not gay and you're not a drunk and you're not a thief, you and God are good in your own good terms because you're not those things, Jesus isn't for you. If you think that because you're successful and you provided for your kids and so God is happy with you, Jesus isn't for you. If you think that you and God are on good terms because you go through some ritual every week, Jesus isn't for you. Jesus didn't come for people that that are good enough and strong enough on their own. He came for sinners. And there are many people who won't ever receive Jesus. They won't ever hear his call. They won't ever know what it's like to receive the blessing of forgiveness because they believe they're already Christians. Never having heard the call to repent. They believe that they're already Christians. So they can't hear Jesus when he's calling. They're deaf to him. And if you took what they call Jesus out of the equation, their lives would look exactly the same. They don't need Jesus. He's an accessory. And Jesus is saying, until you desperately need me, you don't know me. You can't know me. You can't hear me. Until you've battled with sin and walked away defeated, you don't know your need for Jesus. And if you don't know your need, you cannot know him. Anyone who Jesus calls to himself, he first shows them their need. Think of Paul the missionary. You know his story? Totally independent, good in his own eyes. He didn't have any need for a savior. In fact, he thought he was Israel's savior. He he was zealous. He was righteous. He was a Pharisee. He was a protector of Israel. A protector of all that is good. And for the... All that he was, Jesus called him. But first, what did he do? He showed him his need. Paul could not respond to Jesus if he had not first been shown. You're a sinner, Paul. 
Jesus showed him his need. He showed Paul his sin, and then he called him. And for the rest of his life, Paul will say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. I was the worst of sinners, but Jesus saved me. And and here's Jesus, and all the people eating with Jesus at this table. In Matthew's house, these are the people that know that Jesus is their only hope. They're people who desperately need a Savior because they know that there's nothing they can do to remove the, the stain of their own sins. There, there are people who, up until meeting Jesus, were only known for their sin. But that's not who they are anymore, is it? Now they're friends of Jesus. They have a new identity. And such were some of you. Amen? Such were all of us who claim Christ. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We can claim Christ because we've been forgiven. Let's eat with him this morning, can we? Let's pray.